them, especially us, to suffer. And there's usually two different ways that people in general respond to God and suffering. One is uh, kind of a super spiritual answer. Well, if this is going on in your life, there must be sin in your life. There must be something wrong with your life. Otherwise, God would be granting favor to you and and blessing you and, and all these things in your life. There's some hidden sin, maybe a blind spot in your life that you're not covering. Then the second one is to say, well, look, if God does exist, he is either not all loving or not all powerful. You can't have both. And so, therefore, the God of the Bible does not exist. He doesn't care anyway. And so why should we care? Sort of a secular or cynical type of answer. But the book of Job tells us that neither one of those are true. And in the book of Job, we find a, a book that's more so different than any other book, really, on pain and suffering in the entire study of literature. Never do we have a book like this that gives us insights to what suffering really is all about and what it's not than in the book of Job. And as we open up this book, we understand there are few enemies in life that are going to discourage us more than suffering, pain and suffering that we have in in our life. It causes us to question our relationship with God. It causes discouragement, sometimes wrong decisions, really defeating type of life. And sometimes it causes people that really walk away from their their faith. Listen to what um, I quote from the book Reason for God in one young lady. Says, I just don't believe the God of Christianity exists, said Hillary, an undergrad English major. God allows terrible suffering in the world, so he might be either all powerful and not good enough to end evil and suffering, or else he might be all good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all good, all powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. Her friend says, This isn't a philosophical issue to me, added Rob, Hillary's boyfriend. This is personal. I don't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, but maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. Now, you and I, as maybe followers of Christ, we would not put things in that kind of of, of sense of of terseness, of, of really rebellion or kind of a prideful act. But yet, we've thought those kind of things before. It may be just seconds, it may be just a few days, but you felt discouraged, you felt defeated because nothing can really take you away from where you want to be with God and discourage you. No greater enemy can Satan use in our life than suffering in our life because sometimes it just doesn't make sense and we always ask the question, why? Well, as we open up this book, I want you to see something uh, unusual. How can we see suffering? Because I believe we can see suffering not as an enemy, but as a ministry. So how do we do that? Well, I want to read the text beginning in Job chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, there was a day when the sons of God, these were angels, and we're going to be starting a series of messages on angels and demons next uh, Sunday night. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered in the Lord and said, does 
Job fear God for no reason, for nothing? Have you put a hedge, haven't you put a hedge around his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of your hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Kind of a shocking type of book really, isn't it? A book that really is almost out of left field, like the book maybe of Revelation, if you've read that. Kind of doesn't always balance in your thoughts about what God is all about. And there's nowhere in the Bible that says that this happens all the time. When Satan approaches God, God said, okay, I you know, Satan says, I challenge you. And God says, okay, I'll accept the challenge. Nowhere in Scripture do we see this as the norm. This was an unusual case, I believe, but it did happen. And it happened for a reason. It happened to teach us something about pain and suffering, and evil and suffering in the world. I want us to see a couple of things this morning. I want us to see that it's real, the reality of it. I want us to see the reasons for it. And then I want us to see what we can do about it. Because this series is about seven enemies to your faith and how to defeat them. And so we're going to see how to defeat it. First of all, the reality of suffering. We set the scene up. We understand that Job's a very wealthy man. He's got a lot of, a lot of stuff going on. And uh, he's, he's very blessed of God. Satan comes to him, and Satan knows the heart of man. He says, will Job serve God for nothing? In other words, God, the only reason he's serving you and loving you is because of what you've given him. He's just, he's out for something. He's out to use you in some way. He doesn't really love you. You know, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you look back in the book of Genesis, uh, Satan used the same method of operation against Eve, only just the opposite. She says, he, he told us that Eve, God doesn't, God doesn't love you. In fact, he's trying to use you. The reason you can't eat of this tree is because he's trying to keep something from you. And if you eat of the tree, you're going to be just like God. Well, he turns it around now. And he says, God, here's a man that doesn't love you. The moment you take away his blessings, he'll curse you to your face. Well, doesn't he know, man? I mean, don't you have situations like that? Maybe not as drastic in your life, but there are still situations. You know the guy that keeps calling you up all the time on the phone. And, uh, you know, he asks, hey, hey, what's going on in the hurricane? Are you okay? I was just concerned about you. He writes you a letter, writes you a birthday card. But the moment you cancel business with him, you never hear from him again. This is just the heart of man. And so Satan understands that, and he challenges uh, Job in the same way. Now, notice what happens. We had time to read the entire book. We could find out. In fact, in chapter 1, he lost his oxen in verse 14. He lost his sheep and his servants in verse 16. His camels in verse 17. His children in verse 19. His health in chapter 2. The encouragement of his wife. I mean, she said, curse God and die. So I think that's a lack of encouragement in chapter 2. And uh, the support of his friends as they, they argued his three friends argued, said, you know, Job, we, we think you're a righteous guy. I mean, you're, you're really seem to be living it, but there's some secret sin in your life. that has to be, or else God would not allow this to happen to you. And so through this, we find out many things. Number one, suffering did not originate with God. In fact, Satan is the one that challenges God. He's the one that brings about the calamity upon Job's life. In fact, you will not find in the Bible anywhere where there is even a natural disaster before the fall. There are no hurricanes, no earthquakes, no fires. 
What happened is that Adam and Eve sinned against God and unleashed the evil that's in the world, unleashed the sin of the world, and therefore unleashed the suffering of the world. Now, somebody, uh, somebody says, well, look, God, uh, God, I understand that God had to allow that suffering, allow that free choice, but you know, he could take away suffering now. He could do that. Well, okay, what would that occur? What would, what would happen? When you look at, look at suffering, you'll always find another word attached to suffering when you're studying it. Evil and suffering, evil and suffering, evil and suffering, evil and suffering. Why? Where does suffering come from? It comes from sin. It comes from evil. If there had been no sin, there had been no suffering. So in order for God to eradicate suffering, he would have to eradicate sin, which he will do one day in heaven. But he'd have to eradicate sin altogether. I had to wipe it out. How, does, how do you wipe out sin when all of us are sinners? When all of us have done at least something wrong? Well, he'd have to eradicate us. And so in order to get rid of us, and you say, well, maybe, maybe, maybe the young people that come along, you know, he could get rid of it then. Well, then he'd have to take away free choice, free will. I mean, all of us want the criminal's free will taken away. We just don't want our freedom taken away. Think about it for just a minute. And so, in fact, let me just say this. The, the problem of evil and suffering is one of the proofs that there is a God. Let me explain. Somebody says, well, you know, uh, the guy in North Korea, he's an evil guy. The terrorists attack London. They're, they're evil people. Uh, Jack the Ripper was an evil person. Hitler was an evil person. And how do you know that? How do you know they were so wrong? How do you know they were evil? Because you said there's a moral good. Man, I know the difference between right and wrong. So what you're saying is, since there's a moral evil, there has to be something to compare it to. So therefore, there has to be a moral good. If there's a moral good, there has to be a moral law. Something that we all kind of accept that is the moral law. If there's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. There must be someone telling us what that moral law is and pulling the strings. And so we find here the reality of it all. But I want you to notice something that God controls the evil, even though he allows it. Notice it says in verse 12, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out uh, from his presence. Satan did know the heart of people. He, he would understand that most people do serve God, perhaps out of a benefit that they would occur. But God says, look, whatever you do, you, you, you have to limit it. I'm li putting limitations on it. He was controlling the situation. What, what we find here is that this man, Job, was involved in deep spiritual warfare. Maybe greater warfare than any of us have ever experienced before in our entire life. But we have experienced spiritual warfare. So we see the reality of it, but it doesn't help us, does it? It doesn't help us with the why. So why? Why would God allow suffering? Let's look at the reasons why. And I'm just going to give you five or six because, uh, you know, this is not an exhaustive list, but I believe it's an exhaustive list of the main things. And that is, number one, there is evil in the world. We, we just can't escape it. It's all around us. And so what we're asking is, God, look, I know I'm in an evil world, but I don't want to suffer in the evil world. I don't want, I want you to put some kind of hedge around me where I will never feel depressed. I will never feel discouraged. Uh, success will be all around me. My kids will be successful. I'll never die. My kids will never die. My parents will never die. They'll never get Alzheimer's. I never have, I'll never have a heart attack. I, but it doesn't work that way, does it? When you're, when you're in a war, in World War II, in the 
when, when that was going on, it affected everybody in the world almost. I mean, all, all in the free world. It affected us. Now, it wasn't our fault. It was Hitler's and Mussolini's fault and others. It wasn't our fault. I don't even think it was Roosevelt's fault. We were innocent bystanders and we got drug into it. Why? Because it was a world war. When someone has a car accident, you may be driving along. You've got kids in the car in your van or your SUV and you're driving along and some drunk driver runs a stop sign and runs into you. Wasn't your fault. We live in an evil world. Now, what would happen? Come with me just a minute. What would happen if we said, hey, if you receive Christ, no evil will ever come about you. And not only that, but you'll be successful, and you'll have money, and you'll have this, and you'll have that. And I realize some people think, well, that's already being preached. But what if it was really true? What if it was true? All right? And you say, oh, man, sign me up. Sign me up. Everybody would sign up. Not because they were convicted that they were sinners and separated from God and needed a Savior and came humbly to the cross of Christ to receive him into their heart. But rather, they would say, well, look, you know, if, if I've got to save my son's life and I've got to get saved, or if I've got to be successful in business, I, I need to be born again. If I need to save my marriage, then that's, this is what I need to be regenerated in my heart. It all means the same thing. I need to be saved. And so I'll just get saved and everything will be okay. No, that just doesn't how, how it works. This is not heaven. This is earth. And so there's evil suffering in the world, and we cannot escape it in this life. But there's another reason, and that is to teach us to love God. I want us to skip over to verse 20 of chapter 1. After all these things befall Job, here's what he says. Then Job arose and tore his robe. Very emotional. He tore his robe and shaved his head. Now, that wouldn't be a big deal today, but it was back then. And fell on the ground, and what did he do? He didn't blame God. He worshiped. And he said, naked I came into my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. What was his attitude? Hey, look, God, you've taken all these things away from me, but they weren't mine in the first place. I came into this world naked. I'm going to leave this world naked. I had nothing that I brought into this world, nothing that I'm leaving. He was not an owner. He was a steward, a manager of God's creation and possessions, and therefore, he was not tied to any of these things. They, they, were not, they were not the love of his life. Now, this was the big test in Job's life in particular. The same test, again, he gave Eve. He came to, to great emotion, and he says, God, I'm grateful to you. Why should I look at you in a bad way from you taking that which you've already given me, and they were all a gift from you, and now he has a grati- an attitude of gratitude. And dear friend, that's, that's something that has to be along with love, even in a love relationship in a, in a marriage. I was reading an article yesterday from a lady psychologist that said, in our modern day 21st century, we have come to a place in our life where we're saying that marriage is so equality, it's almost inter- the, the roles are almost like interchangeable. It's not even, it's not even a thing where we're equal anymore. It's interchangeable. And everybody's independently, financially uh, independent of one another. And not only that, but independent of child care, independent of this. And, uh, and when we become independent, we're not dependent. When we're not dependent, love can't grow. And it's killing marriages. But it's also killing our relationship with God as well. 
When we say, this is mine, 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 I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I don't need to humble myself before God, then we find a person that is not dependent upon him anymore and the love relationship can't grow. God begins to remove things that he's blessed us with so we can look to him and say, God, once again, I'm just, I'm just looking to you. I'm just depending on you. Thirdly, it proves our faith. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Then his wife said to him, here it is right here, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of a foolish woman who would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall not receive evil? And all of this he did not sin with his lips. How do you know that you have faith if you've never had to use it? You say, well, I, I think I have a lot of faith in God. I, I, really, I really believe God. How do you know unless you've never had to use it? Trials come in our life. Adversity comes in our life to teach us about our faith, where we are in the Christian life. But then also it provides for growth. Job said this, he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Now, when you have gold, what you do, you heat the gold. And to purify the gold, you heat it. And the dross, as they call it, rises to the top and you scrape it off. And then you heat it again and more and you scrape it off until it becomes pure. When you and I go through the trials in life, the fiery trials of life, those imperfections rise to the top. We realize, oh my goodness, God, I can't believe I even allowed that in my life. Why didn't I see that before? And all of a sudden he wipes that out because you're convicted of it. Something's happened to your life in a very, very positive way. This even happens, by the way, even without, a, without being a Christian. You know that when you are going through adversity and suffering in your life, it brings about maturity. It does. Paul talks about it in Romans 5. James talks about it in James 1 in the books of the Bible. All through the Bible it talks about this, but we know that. Child psychologists will tell us that. You show me someone that has gone through no suffering in their life or, or just squeezed, weaseled out of it. Their, their parents bailed them out of it. I'll show you really a whiner. Somebody that every time something happens, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. But you show me someone, you know this. You, you meet someone, maybe a teenager, a college student, a young adult, and you think, wow, they're really mature beyond their years. Something's happened to them. They've gone through something to bring them out to that place. God provides for growth, growth experiences in our life. He provides ministry to others. We minister best on the road that we have traveled. We have a grief share going on in our church, other things uh, through uh, Celebrate Recovery as well. What, now, what's happening with these people? They, they, they're addicts of something. They're addicted to something. And Celebrate Recovery, I think, if I'm not mistaken, if they're still the same way, they will tell you, we don't want you working in that ministry and helping others unless you've been through it yourself. Why? Because we minister on the roads where we've traveled. And Job, at the end of the book, was able to minister to his friends because of what had happened in his life. And lastly, it points us to Christ, which brings me to my third point. And my last point is this. There is a response to suffering. There's a way that we can defeat it in our life. Now, Job 
what Job did, he looked to God. Naked I came into this world, naked I shall return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In fact, the message of the book is God is enough. God's enough for me. I remember being in an Old Testament class, Southwestern Seminary, back years ago. And um, my Old Testament professor was going through the book of Job. Kind of a, it was an Old Testament survey, just going through each book during the semester, hitting the highlights. And he just told us the message of the book is what? And everybody was guessing. Everybody was guessing in the, you know, kind of a little participation in class. And he said this. He said, the message of the book is God is enough. And immediately, now these were missionaries and pastors and youth ministers and music ministers to be sitting in that class. And they said, now, wait a minute. That just can't be. That can't be. There were many guys in there and, and ladies had trouble with that message. That God is enough. How did God become enough? How did, how did Job reach to the point where it says in verse uh, 20 or, or 10, once again, he said, he did not, with all this, he didn't sin in, with his lips. And in chapter 1, verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He endured. How in the world did he do that? How, did, how in the world did Job really defeat all this adversity in his life? Well, we're going to find an answer, the, the best answer for us, in New Testament times in the book of Hebrews. And in the New Testament, it talks about what Jesus did. Now, I'm going to set up this little, uh, these two verses for you real quickly. In the book of Hebrews, we find in chapter 11, we find a list of Old Testament people who have been through a lot of suffering, a lot of adversity. This one in the mouth of a lion, this one in a shipwreck, this, this. And all this, they had faith, enduring faith with God. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we have surrounded, or we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's talking about all the Old Testament saints he just mentioned in chapter 11. Therefore, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so, us, so closely, the dross at the top, as we said, purifying the gold. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now here's the charge. Here's what Jesus said, or the writer of Hebrews says to do. He says what you need to do now that we're surrounded by all these examples in our life, that we are to run the race, lay aside all the sin, all the encumbrances and the weights that's going to weight us down that where we can't run. And you go light. And you run the race with endurance to win. Well, that's good. How are we going to do that? How are we going to run that kind of race with so many unanswered prayers in our life. How are we going to run that race when our children aren't doing what we feel like they, they need to be doing? How can we run that race when we don't have a job? How can we run that race when we're repairing things at home? How can we run? How can we? How can we? And he gives us the answer in verse 2. And he gives us three things. He says, number one, looking to Jesus. Three principles. It's where we look. Our focus, our eyes need to be on Jesus. Job here was looking through the eyes of the Lord. He was looking through the eyes of the Father. Now this word in the Greek means to look away. It says, look away to Jesus. Look away from what? Looking away from the things that you're losing. See, here's the thing about suffering. Suffering is all about losing. You lose something and you suffer. You lose your health because, and you suffer for that. 
You lose a boyfriend or girlfriend. You suffer for that. You lose your home to a flood. You suffer. It's suffering and suffering because we are losing something in our life. He says, look away from those things. What things? The finite, temporary things of life. Because they will always bring you loss. Here's a guy going through midlife. You know, you, you hear the typical stories of a man going through a midlife crisis. He goes out and, uh, you know, get, gets him a wig and, and he goes out and buys him a nice car. And, and he, he does all kinds of things, you know, dresses like, the, you know, in the 70s with psychedelic clothes. I don't know. All this kind of stuff going on. What's he saying? Hey, I'm, I'm rebelling against my age. I'm losing something. I don't want to lose it. I'm not ready to lose that. You get to old age, the creaking joints and the health issues. And some people get so miserable in that. Why? Because they're losing something they valued for so long, their health. The older you get, now you gain things too, but the older you get, the more you lose. I can tell you that. Now, I don't mean to depress you on that. Um, That's the encouraging word today, folks. (laughs) But, you know, when you're younger, you feel like you're gaining things. But you lose things as well. But when you're older... You just keep, well, I lost my, my kids. I mean, they, they moved out. And some of you think, thank God for that, you know. But, <clears throat> but boy, when they move off to London or, or Oxford and England and, and uh, North Carolina and some of you different parts of the world, they're, they're in the military or they're in the ministry, they're on the mission field. You think, man, I've lost. But you gain those grandkids. And they're wonderful. Okay? So you do gain some things, but you lose. And you lose until you finally lose your life. And so what I'm saying is, is that we tie our things to finite things. Our affections, our precious things, as we said before. That thing that is so important to us becomes the, becomes the most important thing. The pearl of great price. The treasure in the field, as the Bible says. It becomes the most important thing in our life. And as long as we are trusting in and loving the finite things of life, we're going to lose. And as long as we lose, we're going to suffer. Job was saying, hey, naked I came into the world, naked I shall return. I'll go out of this world with nothing. I have nothing. There's nothing. What what can I lose? I don't have anything. Because he was looking to Jesus. You remember the story about Jesus walking on the water, coming toward the boat of the disciples, and there was a storm going on. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out there and uh, greet you. And he says, okay, come on. And Peter started walking on the water. And as long as he looked to Jesus, he walked on the water. But the moment he looked away from Jesus to the waves and to the rain and everything that was going on, he began to sink and cried out, Lord, help me. Looking to the temporary, taking his eyes off the eternal. Looking to Jesus, keeping focused on Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus. Are you looking to him? Are you looking to the, to the infinite things today or the finite things? But that's not enough. There's another step. Looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith. Now, this word, founder, some of your translations says author. Some of your translations say various things. comes from a Greek word, archegon, which really an archego or a hero, a champion, a champion for us. That's kind of what it really means. In the Greek and Roman Empire, and really back in the Jewish time, there's a place in the Bible called, you know, big battle between David and Goliath. 
Some of y'all remember that. If you don't remember, you've seen movies about it, you've heard references. What, what was happening in there? Each one of them chose a champion. And that champion was to fight in the arena. And if one champion, say David, won the battle, then the whole Jewish army were winners. If Goliath won, the entire Philistine army were the winners. One man fighting for everybody else. David was the arch ego. Goliath was the arch ego. Jesus is the arch ego for us. He's our champion. He took our place. He took the sword in the side, the nails in the hand, the crown of thorns, the nails in the feet. His blood was shed for us. He spent three days uh, uh, releasing captives in hell. And so, and, until, he was until he was ascended up into heaven after the resurrection. Jesus was our champion. And he says, look to Jesus because it's not just what, where we look, it's what we see. Are you seeing the author and finisher of your faith? And why is that important? As I said a few minutes ago, there's two ways you can look at this whole thing. You can look at it crushed. Boy, all this is happening to me. You know, I, I shouldn't have traveled so much maybe when I was, my kids were young. I shouldn't have spent money there. I shouldn't have invested there. Boy, I lost all my investments, all my, yeah, I, I, I'm, it's my fault, God. I deserve it. On the other hand, you could say, I'm not crushed about it. In fact, I'm bitter about it because I don't deserve it. Because a lot of people have made bad investments before. And I had to travel for my job. And the children, my kids should have understood that. I had to do it. Other people did it. Look, I don't care about all these. I just don't deserve it. So you become bitter. But when you look to a champion, when you look to our arch ego, and you realize what Jesus Christ has done for us and substituting for us, you come to God and say, okay, God, maybe I do deserve it. But God took my deserving for me. Jesus Christ went to the cross and took what I deserve on the cross to pay for my sins. He was my champion, and he won the battle on the cross and that spiritual battle with Satan. He won on the cross. He won in the grave. He won in the ascension. He's still winning today, and I'm on the winning side. Amen. That's what it's all about. And that's how we begin now to get through and to endure. God says, you need to look to Jesus. You need to endure. You need to lay aside the things in your life that are hurting you and endure. How do you do that? You look to Jesus. What you look at is what you see, but then also it's what you follow. What example are you following? Look at this. It says, perfecter in our faith who for joy, the joy that has, was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah, well, what joy was that? What joy was that? Well, Jesus really enjoyed. It must have been. must have been. Jesus really enjoyed going to the cross and getting nailed there with his, you know, the nails right there just below his hands and, and his feet and, and the crown of thorns on his head and beaten beyond description. He must have really enjoyed that. I think that's what it was. No, you know that wasn't what it was. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane before that crying out to his father, Lord, if this cup of wrath could pass from me, but then again, your will be done, not mine. What was the joy? The joy was the big picture. And the big picture for Jesus was, yes, I'm for the joy, 
I'm despising the shame and the shame of the cross and the shame of sin, getting up on the cross, dying there on the cross for your sins and mine for the big picture. So one day, people like you and I and you and me in particular could go to heaven, could have all of our sins forgiven and be able to call God our Father. A big picture. What about us? Are we seeing the big picture the big picture is that your life was, is not revolved around one day. Neither is mine. It's the span of a lifetime and the influence of several lifetimes. Are you seeing the big picture? Looking unto Jesus. Job, because of that, never quit. He just, he just would not quit. He endured. Jesus didn't quit because he saw the big picture. In fact, listen to what it says about Job and the last chapter, he says, and Job died, an old man, full of days. He was blessed. He received back everything that God had taken or Satan had taken and manyfold. But m- most of us are like this little story, to close, this little story of uh, a bear trap told by Lee Strobel in the book Case for Faith. It says, okay then, imagine a bear in a trap and a hunter who out of sympathy wants to liberate the bear. He tries to win the bear's confidence, but he can't do it. So he shoots the bear full of drugs. Well, the bear, however, thinks that this is an attack and the hunter is trying to kill him. He doesn't realize this being done out of compassion. Then in order to get the bear out of the trap, The hunter has to push him further into the trap to release the tension on the spring. If the bear were semi-conscious at this time, he would be even more convinced that the hunter was his enemy and who was out to cause him suffering and pain. But the bear would be wrong. He reaches this incorrect, listen, he reaches the incorrect conclusion because he is not a human being. It's concluded. How can anyone be certain that's not an analogy between us and God? I believe God does the same to us sometimes, and we can't comprehend it. Why he does what he does, any more than the bear can understand the motivations of the hunter. As the bear could not have trusted the hunter, so we cannot trust God. And he finishes up by saying, but as the bear should have trusted the hunter, we should also trust God. Is that like us? We're looking to all these finite things. Oh, I lost. I lost more, more, more. My, my health, my joints, my, oh, my knee blew out. And, and my career, nobody calls me anymore. My, my sales are down. I've been demoted. I lose, lose, lose because we're centered on those finite things. You know, the, the worst thing about Job and the story of Job is not that he never understood why. By the way, we have to be willing to say, I don't, I don't know why it was done. I don't know why I'm going through this, and I may never know. Job never knew. Job never was told what was going on behind the scenes. But the, that's why the worst thing about what happened to Job was his feeling of abandonment. He felt like God had abandoned him, but he didn't. But let me share with you, there's one individual 
only one that's ever lived, who was told by God, if you do everything I tell you to do, I'm going to send you to hell. If you do everything I tell you to do, you're going to die a shameful death. If you do everything I tell you to do, there'll be a moment where you'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Job felt abandoned. You and I feel, I've I've felt abandoned before. God, where are you? I've never been abandoned. But Jesus Christ was. Because there's a bigger picture in mind. And that bigger picture was you. For you to come humbly and before the cross and say, God, I, I bring nothing to the cross. I bring nothing for my salvation. I can do nothing to save myself. I'm simply humbling myself before you and asking you to save me. Asking you to forgive me of my sin and come into my life. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You saw the big picture. You're part of that big picture. Won't you see it today? Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.